Good morning, everybody. My name is Adam Siminski. I'm with the CSIS Energy and National Security Program. Uh, we're very pleased uh, today to uh, host a presentation from the National Energy Board, the NEB. Uh, they'll be discussing Canada's energy future. It's a 2017 version for 2018 and, uh, and the future. Uh, energy supply and demand projections all the way out to the year 2040. Uh, this report, uh, which is part of the NEB's annual energy future series, features long-term uh, projections of Canadian energy supply and demand. The 2017 uh, edition examines how recent energy developments, especially in climate policy, have affected Canada's energy outlook. Study also includes additional scenarios focusing on long-term climate policy and technology trends. Uh, similar in structure uh, to the U.S. Energy Information Administration's annual energy outlook. Uh, the report is uh, the only public long-term Canadian energy outlook that includes all energy commodities from all of the provinces and territories uh, in Canada. Um, before we get started, uh, I just want to remind everybody of the safety announcement. If the fire alarm should go off, we're not expecting that. Uh, one way out is back here. The stairs are over to this side and down out the front door, or you could go out the back here. And uh, there is a way through the alley to end up at the National Geographic. There's always good exhibits over there. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I think you'll actually enjoy this presentation on Canada uh, more than wandering around out there in the, uh, in the wind and rain this morning. Uh, the presentation today, uh, Dr. Abba Borgava, Chris Dolman, and Matthew Hansen uh, is going to be uh, followed by a Q&A session. Uh, let me just very briefly uh, tell you a little bit about uh, Abba, Chris, and Matthew. Um, Abba is the director of the energy integration team at the National Energy Board, and she's responsible for all of the uh, Energy Futures uh, report series. Uh, Abba and I have known each other for a long time. The, when I was at the Energy Information Administration, uh, we had, and even before that, had a lot of interaction with the National Energy Board in Canada and uh, doing, uh, uh, trying to understand the assumptions that uh, our respective agencies were putting into the long-term forecast. Uh, Chris Dolman is a market analyst with the energy integration team uh, at the NEB. Uh, he's worked on various areas, including uh, end-use demand modeling, uh, the natural gas liquids markets, uh, oil sands efficiency trends, and uh, overall energy supply and demand. Uh, Matthew Hansen is uh, also a market analyst uh, in the energy integration team. Uh, he's been with the uh, NEB since 2008, specializing in uh, energy demand and electricity uh, modeling. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, interesting uh, aspects uh, to, uh, to Canada. Uh, you know, very large trade partner with the United States, largest energy uh, trading partner uh, with the United States. Uh, so it's, uh, it's I think, uh, not just important for the Canadians to understand Canada's energy future, uh, but for the rest of us as well. And we're delighted uh, to have the NEB team here this morning. Thank you very much. Abba, are you going to start off? Sure, you can speak from right there. That'd be, uh, and then you'll be able to see the, the, the screen. Let me bring the, the clicker and keyboard down and, and uh, we'll be all set. Thank you. I think this should work. 
So this is. Uh, this side of the star. Oh, okay, this side of the star. Okay, good. Thank you. Good morning. Um, it's always a pleasure to come out to DC and uh, share our work. Um, so thank you for the opportunity. Um, I must admit, as I was uh, saying to Adam and and Sarah, that this was not the most calming trip that we've ever had. We started with mechanical failures to the flight that we were on, and then after that, delayed flights, and eventually got to Toronto at Toronto Airport at about one, uh, or Toronto Hotel at about 1 a.m. in the morning. And so there were times where we thought we wouldn't be here. So very pleased to be here and <laughs> And thank you for being the audience. Uh, so um, NEB, the National Energy Board, is a federal agency. It's uh, located in Calgary, about 400 people. And um, so our main responsibilities are determined by the National uh, Energy Board Act of 1959. And our contribution to the uh, energy development in Canada focuses largely on regulating the construction, the operation of uh, the international and interprovincial pipelines, the international and designated uh, power interprovincial power lines, uh, authorizing tolls and tariff, and then also authorizing exports of oil, gas, um, natural uh, gas liquids, and electricity, and the imports of natural gas. Um, if you compare it to um, organizations in US, we are a combination of FERC, um, uh, FIMSA, and uh, the EIA. So that's kind of where we stand with our work. And what we are doing here is, um, is from the energy information part of uh, uh, NEB, and our report that we present today is our flagship product. So. Um, I, I'd like to begin with uh, with just a very brief context. It would be okay. easier to just use this. Just kind of do that. So page yeah. down. Yep. Page down is this mm -hmm. one, right? Yes. Okay. Well, one more. Yeah. So energy is actually big in Canada, and um, um, it's. Uh, the sector contributes about 10% to the GDP, about 5% to employment, about 30, 35% to um, the non-residential uh, investment, and 20% to exports, and about 8% to imports. So a very significant part of Canadian economy is, is the energy sector. And Canada's energy sector is best described by province and territories, largely because it's a very diverse mix um, and uh, coming stemming from the indigenous resource of each jurisdiction. And um, so, for example, natural gas plays a very significant role in Western Canada. It's used a lot more, um, and, and largely because oil and gas, much of oil and gas is produced in, in the Western provinces. Uh, electricity is, uh, uh, is more significant in hydro-producing uh, regions, and if you're familiar, um, they span all across Canada, starting from Quebec on, on the east, uh, to Manitoba in central Canada, and then uh, to British Columbia on the west coast. Um, 
For the territories, the three territories, they are located, situated far north. They're very remote, and, uh, and the main con uh, consumption fuel there is the refined petroleum products. Um, Canada, with a large, it's a, it's a large producer and a large consumer of energy. Um, although we produce significant amount of oil, as this chart really uh, shows that um, the production of oil uh, by type has been increasing quite significantly. Um, and, you know, on a world um, level, we are the fourth largest producer of oil uh, in the world. But then we are also uh, a significant producer of non-emitting energy, uh, largely uh, hydropower and the renewable um, electricity. In fact, for hydroelectricity, we are the second largest producer of, uh, of hydropower in the world and fourth largest for uh, renewables. Um, of course, you know, just like our southern neighbor, we are also a huge consumer of energy, second largest on a per capita basis um, in the world. And, uh, and this is all driven by our mass geography, um, very lower, relatively low population, which leads to uh, low population density, uh, harsh climate, and then the energy intensive industrial um, structure of, of the Canadian economy. So um, moving on to, okay, so here's the, now, as we all know, um, North America is blessed with um, an integrated, well-integrated energy market. Um, and uh, this chart that we have here is actually drawn from uh, North American Cooperation on Energy Information. And uh, one of the big leaders on this initiative is Adam uh, uh, Siminski. Um, so a um, lot of work was done under this, uh, this organization. And, um, and, and actually, you know, I recall, you know, the, the stuff that we did uh, under this, uh, this initiative on outlooks basically suggests that North America is quite self-sufficient on an aggregate basis. So, but there's a significant flow of the, you know, the three commodities between these three countries. And if you want to just focus on U.S. and Canada, um, significant amount of uh, U.S. imports um, from in, into Canada come from uh, into U.S. come from Canada. So, for example, crude oil, 41 percent of uh, U.S. imports is is coming from Canada, 97 percent of natural gas imports and 94% of electricity. And all of this contributes to about 36% of uh, US consumption uh, of crude, 10% um, of natural gas consumption, and 2% of electricity consumption all coming from Canada. Um, there's, again, equal flow of, um, of energy into Canada from US, and, um, and so, Crude oil, about 54% of Canadian imports come from U.S., which uh, leads to or contributes to 20% of our consumption. 99% uh, of imports uh, of natural gas come from U.S. 
Um, and then electricity is this 100%. Um, so really large numbers indicating how important that energy sector and interlinkages uh, between the two countries are. Abib. Yes, please. Folks might want to know that they can go to NACEI.org and see all of that uh, information in uh, three different languages, English, French, and uh, Spanish. Uh, lots of statistics and other interesting things. So thank you for mentioning that. It was uh, a delight to be able to work with uh, Canada and Mexico on this joint project for North America, and I appreciate you mentioning it, Ava. So um, in terms of uh, where we are in, uh, in Canada on energy, uh, the Canadian sector is evolving at a rapid pace and, uh, and largely in response to developments in policy and developments in technology. So we've got a chart here which we've extracted from a market snapshot um, that was done uh, last year, January 2017. And it's an interesting one because between 2015 fall and 2016 um, uh, December, it shows how much development took place at the international, at the federal, and at um, the provincial level in Canada um, on climate policy. So each of these dots actually represents a significant announcement um, of, uh, of a climate policy. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and so, and, and the box on the right actually explains or highlights some of the key policy developments that took place um, in the last uh, few years. Um, on the technology side, I mean, we all know about the shale and, and all of that, but there's been significant development also in the oil sands. Um, and, and so robust growth in technologies has led to robust growth in, in the production of oil, despite the low price environment. Um, also, in the renewable front, we find that wind and solar are benefiting from technological pro progression and, um, and the deep uh, cost cuts um, that this uh, uh, sector has experienced. So basically, a lot is changing, a lot is evolving, and uh, that really brings us to the topic that we are here for, um, basically looking at the consumption and the production trends, how will they evolve over the next 25, 30 years? So I'd like to pass uh, the, the presentation to Matthew and to Chris, who can uh, walk through the highlights um, from the report. Great. Um, <clears throat> thanks, Abba. Uh, so we'll, we'll move on to, uh, to the Energy Futures Report. Uh, we've already sort of talked about what it, what it is, um, similar to the EIA's Annual Energy Outlook. Uh, one thing that's kind of notable is this 2017 report uh, actually marks 50 years of, of the NEB doing uh, energy outlook. So the first one um, was 1967, very snappy title called Energy Supply and Demand Forecast, 1965 to 1985. So uh, as you can see, this is a photo of it here. We have one copy in the library. Energy Supply and Demand Forecast, 1965 to 1985 is very big. It's like this, this thick and, uh, you know, double space font, uh, very cool cover, as you can see. But um, 
One of the things I, that's really cool when you go back <clears throat> at this report, which, which was released over 50 years ago now, um, the themes of energy, environment, uh, technology kind of all intersecting were just as prevalent. And one of the more uh, fun examples is there's two pages in that report devoted to explaining why they're not including a lot of electric vehicles in their forecast. So back in 1967, devoted two, two pages to explaining why that wasn't in the 20-year the outlook. Um, but on to uh, Canada's energy future 2017. Uh, so 50 years, years later, um, here was uh, last year's report. Um, so generally follows the usual format of a baseline reference case projection, as well as some scenarios or sensitivities covering some key uncertainties for Canadian energy. Um, recent reports uh, that we've done have included scenarios on prices, uh, pipelines, pipeline export capacity, uh, potential LNG export volumes. Um, and this report uh, takes a bit of a different focus, uh, focusing on uh, uncertainties related to long-term climate policy developments and technological trends. Um, and some of the elements that Abba just spoke about are really what's driving that focus. Um, some of the rapid recent progress in both of those areas um, have been some of the, the key factors in energy over the last couple of years. So um, we've, we've devoted a couple scenarios uh, to them. So I'll spend a bit of time here kind of explaining the structure of the report and, uh, and the three scenarios shown here, which, uh, which we undertook for EF 2017. Um, so the first thing to mention is that unlike, say, if you're used to like a high price and a low price case, um, which kind of form a range around a baseline, these three scenarios really kind of build off each other, kind of asking additional like, well, what if this happens and what if okay, that happens, but then what if this happens too? Um, so we have a reference case baseline which attempts to provide a consensus view on prices and economic growth and includes uh, currently announced policies where there's at least enough detail announced to, uh, to model them. Um, one of those announced policies uh, that we've included for the first time is, is what's called the pan-Canadian approach uh, to pricing carbon pollution. Um, now, this initiative isn't one national single price on carbon, but it allows provinces and territories to choose how they would like to implement a carbon pricing system and certain benchmarks they need to hit. Uh, for example, if a province wanted to implement an explicit price-based system, such as a carbon tax, uh, there's kind of a minimum price set starting at $10 per ton in 2018, rising $10 each year. Uh, and it's defined until 2022 when that uh, $10 per year hits $50. Um, provinces can also do a cap-and-trade system or like a hybrid approach um, as well in that overall framework. Uh, that's a very high-level overview. There's lots of details um, and not all provinces have declared their intentions, uh, so there is some uncertainty. Um, for our analysis in that reference case baseline as a simplifying assumption, and it is a big uh, simplifying assumption, we said that the, uh, the carbon price across the country basically is, is 50 bucks per ton after 2022 in nominal terms uh, for both uh, provinces with an explicit price-based system or a cap-and-trade. Um, and since there's nothing uh, defined beyond 2022, uh, we've left that flat in, in nominal terms. Um, so it actually declines a bit when you uh, adjust for uh, inflation. Um, but that being said, there is language in the framework that the policy will be reviewed in 2022. Uh, so there's some longer and 
term uncertainty there. Uh, so to address that, we've developed the next case uh, in red there, the higher carbon price case, which assumes that there is increasing global climate action and ca Canada continues to increase the stringency of our climate policy. Uh, and this is uh, sort of demonstrated in this case um, by a rising carbon price, increasing about $5 per ton per year out to 2040 which gets you to about $140 per ton by 2040, um, or about 80 to $90 in uh, 2016 dollars. Um, so our final case, the technology case, builds off that higher carbon pricing case by asking, well, what if there is a like, significant technology response to these higher carbon prices and greater global climate action? Um, since the pace and magnitude of technology trends can be pretty uncertain, it's uh, definitely a question worth looking into. So that case assumes the same rising carbon price case, but includes several examples of greater technology adoption, uh, including higher electric vehicle penetration, lower solar and wind generation costs, and uh, reduced emission intensity uh, for oil sands production. Um, so that's kind of the general structure of the scenarios. Uh, the other key factor to talk about, in addition to the carbon price, is um, uh, the crude oil price, especially for a large um, oil producer like Canada and where it's such an important part of the economy. Um, because these uh, scenarios progressively assume greater global climate action and, and technology, uh, it made sense to us that they would also implicitly assume lower global demand for oil and hence a lower global oil price. Uh, so again, as an assumption, uh, our we're not trying to predict the price of oil here at, at all with these. We, we make assumptions about global oil prices. So uh, the long-term uh, assumption in the reference case is $80. Um, we assume it's $5 lower, uh, $75 in the higher carbon price case. And uh, in the technology case with, say, increased EV adoption, things like that, um, assumes it eventually drops to $65 in, the, in that case. Um, so that's the general structure of the report. Um, before getting into the, uh, the key results, uh, which I'll, I'll pass over to Chris, a few more fine print items that, that are kind of worth, worth thinking about. Um, first, this is an analysis of supply and demand. Uh, so in terms of any questions on future infrastructure, pipelines, market availability, that kind of thing, um, it generally assumes um, infrastructure will be built as needed and markets will be found. So it really focuses on that long-term um, elements. Um, goals and targets are not modeled explicitly, but uh, policies and regulations that are in place to meet them are. Um, and in terms of policies and programs, we basically included everything that was announced, provided there was enough detail. Um, so we included the pan-Canadian uh, approach to carbon pricing, but there are some other uh, policies which are under development right now, could have a pretty significant impact, such as the clean fuel standard, um, but there wasn't enough detail at the time we did the analysis to include it. Um, and overall, uh, some of these policy initiatives can be pretty complex and, uh, and there is some uncertainty in, in various aspects, so we've made some uh, simplifying assumptions throughout the analysis. All right, thanks, Matt. <clears throat> so I'm just going to provide an overview here of the uh, highlights of Energy Future 2017 that we're going to share with you today. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about uh, fossil fuels and uh, mainly about how uh, this is uh, how technology, climate policy, and other factors have came together to produce the first energy futures uh, reference case scenario where we have fossil fuels peak in the projection period. 
And then uh, Matt's, I'm also going to talk a bit about how uh, higher carbon prices and uh, a few technology uh, penetrations are going to help reduce that even further in the alternative cases. And then uh, Matt's going to start talking about uh, how Canada's electricity mix uh, changes over the forecast. Uh, Canada's electricity mix is pretty green right now. About 80% of it is from uh, non-emitting sources. And he's going to talk about how the adoption of more solar and wind uh, helps that increase over the uh, projection period. And then he'll talk about the long-term crude oil and natural gas production increases. Or, sorry, the long-term crude oil and natural gas production uh, projections over the forecast period and then how uh, how sort of how the higher carbon prices and technology uh, shape the as well end price shape that over the projection period. Uh, but okay. yeah. now, first, uh, the baseline projection here. So, after fossil in the early stages of our projection period, fossil fuels increase uh, until about 2019. Until 2019, where they start to plateau for the rest of the projection period and. On this chart here, you're sort of seeing like lines of our last decade of worth of reports for fossil fuel projection. And uh, you can sort of see that there's this bending over time, uh, going back from EF 2007 to EF 2017 on the bottom. And uh, so I'm sort of just going to explain here like what is bending this projection uh, over the last decade. And uh, the first thing would be energy efficiency. We've had a uh, increased improvements in energy efficiency throughout these decade of outlooks in all sectors of the economy. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of ones that were big factors in EF 2017. We had a pretty high penetration of electric vehicles in this uh, report, and that because electric vehicles are about three and a half times more efficient than gasoline vehicles currently, that's going to just drive uh, efficiency gains in the passenger sector. Uh, also. In the heavy-duty vehicle side of things, this is the first uh, report where we had sort of HDV2 come on post-2018. So you have uh, improved uh, freight uh, efficiency. Uh, moving on to climate policy would be the other major factor. If, if you look at EF2007, which is the highest fossil fuel projection that goes out to about 2030, it back then you had no area in Canada, no jurisdiction had a price on carbon. You fast forward to EF 2016 update, which is the blue line, the second lowest fossil fuel projection. You had about 80% of the population uh, in a jurisdiction where carbon was being priced. And then EF 2017, we have carbon priced throughout the economy after 2023, as well as the price is higher than it was in EF 2016 update. Uh, another thing would be coal phase-outs. Uh, back in EF 2007, I think only Ontario was phasing out coal in that projection period. Uh, in EF 2016 update, Alberta had its 2030 uh, coal phase out uh, integrated into that forecast. And in EF 2017, you have uh, the federal wide phase out of coal. And I guess the last thing will just be uh, macroeconomics. Um, EF 2007 in particular is pretty stark. Uh, that was done before the great or the financial crisis. And uh, that had a lasting impact on a lot of industry in Canada, and, which uh, impacts demand and therefore impacts fossil fuel uh, use. Uh, so you had uh, basically what I'm saying here, just GDP growth or uh, gross output growth for a lot of sectors is lower than it was about a decade ago. So, and, now, I sort of explained why things ratcheted down over time throughout our outlooks. Now, just to sort of get into why this outlook is uh, 
peaking. And to sort of do that, I think it's good to do things on a fuel-by-fuel fuel basis. So I start with coal in an ironic green color in this chart. Uh, you kind of basically, this all comes down to the phase-out. Uh, you have a federal phase-out in 2030. However, uh, in Alberta in particular, there's uh, earlier than uh, needed or earlier than required phase-outs happening around 2020. So that starts uh, coal, you know, coal and coal products declining uh, in around 2020. And uh, moving on into oil products or refined petroleum products in blue, you have uh, several things coming together. You have vehicle emission standards that are uh, reducing uh, energy demand for gasoline and diesel in the freight and passenger sectors. Sectors You have uh, in the non-transport sectors, you have uh, efficiency improvements resulting, well, you have fuel switching away from fossil fuels due to the carbon price, as well as uh, energy efficiency gains, uh, decreasing uh, oil use in that sector. And I'd say lastly, you have uh, energy, sorry, uh, electric vehicle penetration reducing uh, gasoline demand in that sector, or in that, sorry, for that fuel. <clears throat> as well as, uh, let's not forget biofuel blending. That's gonna put a damper on uh, oil product growth uh, throughout the projection period. And lastly, I'll talk about natural gas, the lone fossil fuel that uh, grows over the projection period. Uh, it's growing due to uh, uh, natural gas fire generation and uh, growth in the in-situ oil sand sector. Uh, but it's put a, there's a damper put on its growth due to uh, significant improvements in uh, oil sands uh, production methods, as well as uh, energy efficiency improvements in buildings and uh, increased penetration of renewable electricity. And then moving on to the alternative cases, just to get a show for what fossil fuel does in those scenarios. So they also have fossil fuel use peak in 2019. Uh, the higher carbon price case has uh, higher carbon prices disincenting more fuel switching away from fossil fuels to greener fuels, and you have uh, about 8% lower fossil fuel use in that scenario. In the technology case, you have uh, increased uh, the higher carbon prices as well as uh, increased technology penetration, you get about 13% uh, lower than the reference case and 5% uh, lower than the higher carbon price case. Uh, and just uh, to get a bit into what technologies are doing what here to reduce fossil fuel demand, with a lower electric battery cost, you're getting a higher EV penetration in that case, which lowers uh, gasoline demand relative to the other cases. You're getting, we're seeing um, increased employment of steam solvents, which is improving uh, oil sands in situ energy intensity, which reduces natural gas use in the technology case. Lower wind and solar costs and improved renewable integration are reducing electricity, sorry, are reducing electricity generation from fossil fuels. And lastly, greater electrification of space and water heating in buildings is leading to a lower natural gas use in the building sector. And then I'll pass it back to Matt to, to start talking about electricity. Thanks, Chris. So, uh, so that was really kind of the, <clears throat> the major energy use uh, story. Uh, Canada's sort of domestic energy use story uh, was, was quite a, a big part of the release when we did the report. Uh, lots of interest, particularly because it was kind of a, a changing trend or at least the kind of evolution of, of a, as we showed all those outlooks for Canada's domestic fossil fuel use. Um, have been declining over time and it finally kind of flattened out. 
Um, so I'll talk a bit more about uh, the supply side, first on electricity, uh, Canada's electricity generation mix, and then oil and natural gas. Uh, so as Chris mentioned earlier, uh, Canada's electricity mix evolves pretty significantly in the projection. Um, the evolution, however, has been kind of happening for a while. Uh, so to demonstrate, uh, first we'll, we'll look back um, a few years at Canada's electricity generation mix in 2005. Uh, so what are we looking at here? Um, well, this, this image uh, shows electricity generation mix. It's from our suite of data visualizations that go along with the report, and I'll talk a bit about those later. Um, but just to explain, each one of the black circles represents a province or territory in Canada. Um, so all 10 provinces and three territories. Um, and then the colored dots inside represent the relative generation from different sources. Um, so bigger dots mean more generation, and provinces that generate more electricity have bigger dots and bigger circles. That's, that's sort of the structure here. Um, there's a lot to digest uh, here, so I'm not, what I'm going to focus on is the, kind of the overall mix of, of Kellers in there. Um, so although, you know, looking at the electricity mix in the, the Northern Territories is really interesting, don't try and uh, squint your eyes too much to see, see what those are. We'll, we'll take it pretty high level as a, as a starter. Um, so the first thing you can see here is there's a lot of blue highlighting ABBA's earlier point that Canada has a large share of hydro in the mix. Um, back in 2005, there was also a decent amount of coal generation. So those are the, represented by the brown dots. Um, there was some gas, which is orange, and uh, some nuclear in yellow, uh, particularly in Ontario. That's, that's the big yellow dot there. Um, so when, overall, when we look at the 2005 mix, there's a lot of blue, brown, orange, and yellow, or hydro, coal, gas, and nuclear. So let's fast forward 10 years. So 2015, uh, still a lot of blue hydro, still a big yellow nuclear dot in Ontario, um, a bit more orange for gas, um, and significantly less brown for coal. In fact, over this period, Ontario phased out its coal generation fleet, which was a pretty big chunk of the total coal capacity. Um, you'll also note that now the green dots start to enter the mix, which represent wind and solar generation. Um, so finally, we'll take, take a look out over our projection period to 2040 uh, in our reference case. So uh, still a diverse mix, but, but there's been some significant changes and projected to be some significant changes. Um, so number one, uh, that coal is, is virtually gone. This highlights uh, Chris mentioned that we expect a, a coal phase out for the most part in uh, electricity um, generation by 2030. So by 2040, uh, it's, it's out of the mix. Um, and the other big change is those green dots are, are getting bigger and pretty significant by 2040. And that's driven by both policy initiatives and expected cost declines and, and improved economics. So becoming a, a bigger choice when you uh, need to add generation to the mix. Um, I'll talk a bit more about data visualizations later, but uh, if you actually check this out on our website, you can kind of like press play and see it evolve through every year and look at the different scenarios, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun, so, uh, so if you're interested, check that out. Um, but to focus on a bit more on those green dots, so solar and wind, uh, ABBA touched, touched a bit on those um, earlier. So these are the reference case, uh, solar and wind capacity um, projections. Uh, the reference case ones are the solid lines. Um, so in the reference case, 
wind capacity in Canada more than doubles uh, to 2040 and uh, solar more than triples to 2040 from the current levels. So pretty significant growth even in the reference case. And then that technology case where we assume lower wind and solar costs, um, improved variable uh, renewable integration. Um, as you can see, the dash lines are, are a lot higher for both solar and wind over the projection period. And uh, by the end of that case, uh, solar and wind make up about a quarter of Canada's um, electric capacity. So that's the electricity side. Um, talk a bit about uh, crude oil and natural gas. Um, for crude oil, here are the crude oil price assumptions and the uh, Canadian crude oil production projections. Um, in our baseline at $80 per barrel in terms of price, we assume that's enough to incent quite a bit of increased Canadian oil production, and by 2040, uh, in it increases to over 6 million barrels per day in that uh, baseline reference case um, projection. So in the higher carbon price case, uh, which has that lower oil price, um, which is a big driver there, uh, production still increases, but at a slower rate. Um, now, the technology case is an interesting one because we assume that one has the lowest uh, global oil price, um, but also a greater implementation of technologies in the oil sands that reduce emissions intensity, but they also improve the economics um, using less natural gas, less water, uh, that kind of thing. Um, the main one there being increased use of steam solvents. Uh, so that technological improvement basically allows production to remain at the same level as a higher carbon price case, even though the global oil price is, is lower. So that's kind of a, a key dynamic uh, there, that the production is affected by a lot of different things, and uh, you know, prices, markets, technology are all important. Um, the final thing I'll note here is it's a good example of the difference between correlation and causation. Um, you'll see both of these charts have kind of a downturn in, the, in basically the first year. So uh, price, uh, 2016 prices were pretty low. You'll see a, a dip downwards in uh, 2016 Canadian crude oil production, um, not really so much driven by prices being low, but, uh, but more the Fort McMurray wildfires, if you remember, uh, remember that. There were some significant fires that year, and uh, many of the large operations had to, had to shut down. Um, probably would have been on pace to grow uh, production that year, but, but you can see what a significant event that was um, uh, showing up in the total Canadian crude oil production uh, line there. Um, now, on to natural gas. Uh, so for natural gas, we assume prices increase over time, and we don't vary the North American gas price, in, in this case Henry Hub, uh, across the three cases, because it wasn't obvious to us whether greater global climate action meant higher or lower natural gas prices because of the different demand or supply responses, uh, you might imagine. Uh, so we left those ones unchanged. Um, is a, is a difference in the production projections, though. In the reference case, Canadian production declines in the near term uh, due to those lower prices. But in the reference case, eventually begins to increase um, as prices rise, once they get into kind of that $350, $4 per MMBTU range. Um, the lower production outlooks uh, for the other cases are largely um, related to lower oil production in those cases as the associated or solution gas produced along with oil uh, declines as the production declines. Um, so that, that's as a whole is the uh, EF 2017 report, some of the highlights. Um, there's a lot, a lot more information out there and, uh, you know, beyond 
um, either an electronic report like we have now or a gigantic report that they had uh, 50 years ago. Um, data is always uh, a big part of this, as it is with the EIA work. Um, so um, EF is really just more than a report, also a large data source. And over the last few iterations, we've developed a data visualization tool. Um, I showed you some of the electricity um, images from it that really try and make that uh, data more accessible um, and interactive uh, for users of the data. Um, so that's been really great. And then beyond energy data, the NEB just released a brand new visualization focused on regulatory data. Um, specifically incidents at NEB-related pipelines and facilities. Uh, so this one's a major step forward in how regulatory data is displayed and allows users to see where incidents happen, what type of incidents, and uh, many other parameters in what's really a, uh, an extremely complex data set. Um, and just the closing up here, for uh, the NEB really has a, a lot more information beyond just, just the outlooks. Uh, so here's a bit of an overview of the energy information program. Of course, the outlooks are a big part. We're working on uh, the next version of energy future.